Today's sermon is uh, going to follow now uh, some of the readings that we've done in, in, in terms of the Word Wise program that we've been, have been reading through. So we're in the book of Judges. And the book of Judges starts up in the promised land. And that's a lovely picture of the promised land. We think the promised land is a place of beautiful rivers and streams of chocolate and roses and it's all honky-dory. But, you know, the promised land was never ever meant to be a place of ease and a place of rest. The promised land was always going to be a place of challenge and of hard work. And God, I don't think when we come to the promised land, wants us to think that it's a place where we can just relax. We've reached the place now. If you think about it, they journeyed a long way for many years to get to this place of the promised land. And when they got to the promised land, the work had just begun. The work was just beginning. And so I want to talk to you about this and I want to read some of this and then talk about the book of Judges with you and and discuss some of the, the ideas that are recurring in the book of Judges. We're reading in Judges chapter 2, verses 7 to 10. It says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders and out, that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and the servant of the Lord died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Tanathiris, in the mount of Ephraim on the north side of the hill of Gaesh. And also all the generations were gathered unto their fathers. So that's everybody died. So Joshua died and everybody that was leading when Joshua was around, they all died and all the community that was underneath them, they all died as well. And then it says, And there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. That's quite profound when you think about it. You think about the journey from Egypt right through to the promised land. You think about the activity of God in the leadership through Moses and through Joshua and through the Aaron and through the priesthood and the establishment of a, of a mighty nation from you know, you know, some hundred thousands to a couple of million by the time they're ending. And, and then you think about this, it only takes a few generations and they have forgotten God and they have forgotten the Lord and all the things that he's done. Amazing. I read that and I thought, wow, how low a, a, a moment in history for us when we reflect upon this, that they could have failed to communicate to the next generation the value of what they had been through, that they could have failed to communicate in such a way the importance of maintaining their devotion towards the Lord. They, they could have made, uh, failed to maintain their adherence to the, the law of God and, and keeping the commandments of God, so much so that a whole generation arises now that doesn't know the Lord and, and has no idea of what happened coming out of Egypt. It just astounds me. But how easy it is for us to follow suit. How easy it is for us. We, 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 we go through some difficult times and, 
and God is there for us and it's like we, we call out for meat in the wilderness and he provides for us. We call out for water and he opens up the floodgates and gives it to us and we're journeying through hard times and there's, there's snakes and he gives us deliverance from snakes and there's all kinds of things around us and he helps us through the most arduous, difficult time. And it only takes a matter of weeks or something and we've forgotten. We've forgotten the one who freed us. We just have this amazing forgettery. Turn to your neighbour and say, get your forgettery checked out. I figure that there's only one person who should be forgetting. And that's God. He says, I'll forget your sins. I'll remember them no more. And he's masterful at being able to forgetting our sins. We should at least remember our sins, not that we should sit there in guilt and think bad things about ourselves, but we should remember that we were sinners and that we were saved by his grace and that should always be there in our minds and we should always be remembering that we are saved by his grace out of and away from the sins that we were committing. And if we ever forget that we were saved and that we were sinners and that we've been lifted from the pit, woe is us. I mean, one of the things that our society in which we live now they don't think that they are sinners. In general, our society thinks basically people are good, you know, and everybody's going to heaven, you know. It's like they don't, they're not aware that they're sinners. And that's why when you say Jesus can save you, they have no comprehension of what you're talking about because they don't actually think they're lost. They don't actually think they're missing anything. They've been told by the devil all along, just believe in yourself, believe in yourself. That's come from the Care Bears to every movie that ever comes out, every song that's ever sung, just believe in yourself. They don't even think that there's something wrong anymore. So when we sort of start saying to people, you know, you know, uh, do you know that you're a sinner? They don't have any comprehension of that at all. And that can seep into our minds and into our hearts and we can think, that there's somehow a neutral place on earth where there's nice people living who are not really sinners. They just haven't chosen to follow God yet. They're not really bad, but there's this neutral place. Friends, there are no neutral places. You either serve God or you serve the devil. There is no neutral place where nice people live. Your neighbor is not nice, even though they may be pleasant. If they don't love Jesus, they are locked in on their sin. And either you influence them towards God or they will in the end influence you away from God. There is no passive place of neutrality. Sometimes you think, oh, I have this friend and she's not a Christian, you know, but she's a nice person and she's not, she, she respects me for what I believe. Hang on, hang on a minute. It won't be long. She might be respecting you, but she'll be trying to move you away from your hope in Jesus because there's no neutral place. Then there's this thought. When I die, will you remember me? Or will you remember what I stood for? Or will you remember what I believe? Will I have left a legacy for my kids so that my kids and their children and their children's children will remember the Lord. What have I done to lay a legacy down in their lives so that their great, 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 great grandfather, if the Lord should tarry, should still be remembered about his faith in Jesus? 
It's a reflective thing. Or will I be like uh, Keats? And he wrote this. He's a great Scottish poet, if you didn't know who he was. And he wrote this on his... Uh, he said, I, he went to Rome and he died in Rome of a sickness. He's only a young fella. And he says, please inscribe this on my tombstone. Here lies one whose name is writ in water. Now you get the idea. If you write your name in water... Before you've even pulled your finger out, it's gone. And the idea is that no one will remember me. It doesn't matter. My name is going to disappear in time. That's pretty smart. He put it on a stone and we're actually talking about it now. So he actually has a legacy. He wrote some poetry, which is quite profound poetry. And if you, if you like poetry and you read Keats, you will remember him. But generally, if you don't know who Keats is, and maybe this is the first time you've even heard of a guy called Keats, you know, you'll walk out of here and his name will be written water again. It will just disappear from your mind unless you go and actually look up and read a poem from Keats or something like that. So it brings me to this idea then that we have to decide to leave a God-centered, Holy Spirit-empowered legacy. You know, while I'm alive, I have to live in such a way that is so God-centered that that just oozes out of my life. It's so Holy Spirit-empowered so that then at the end of the exercise, people just know that I have been with Jesus, that I have walked with God, and that my life is completely under his control. I have to make that choice. Because I can't leave a legacy just try doing it my own self. The only way that I can leave a legacy is if God works with me to bring some level of excellency through my life. Because he can't, I can't do it by myself. If I try and do it by myself, I'll fail. If I say, oh, look, I want to be remembered, so I'll write a book. Well, that's what people say. You know, write a book and you'll be remembered. You know, there's lots of people who've written books and, <laughs> and their books are forgotten just like they are forgotten. <laughs> Writing a book doesn't mean, I'll oh, build a building. Don't worry. You know, in 50 years, the building will fall down and no one will think it's a heritage piece and, and prop it up again. Don't worry. Every attempt that you try to get immortality, oh, I've got to put some graffiti on the wall. They'll paint over it. You will be forgotten unless Jesus brings your name back to people because there was something notable that he wants people to remember about you. Like he brings the names of those in Scripture to us. And the people who are in the, in, the, in the hall of fame that go through Scripture and we read about them and God says they are worthy of note. They have a legacy today because they lived God-centered lives. Woe to us if we live such wicked lives that we are remembered in the wrong way. So we might make a choice. You know, we say, Lord, I want a legacy that's got some excellence. I want to, I want to be like Barnabas, you know, the son of encouragement. You know, what do we know about Barnabas? That he just really, his name wasn't even Barnabas, the son of encouragement. That's the name they gave him. And that legacy of his life lived on after him because he was such an encouragement to people. It, it just follows him. And as we grow and read the Bible, and from years to year, from generation to generation, everybody discovers about Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and the legacy that he left there. We might have to have a, want to have a legacy of purpose. I want my life to count for something, you know? In this purposeless world, in this world that's driven by 
ideas of evolution which have no grounding on purpose at all. That means we're just all great big mistakes that happen in some cosmic bang. Uh, there is no purpose if we believe in that. But if God is the source of it all and, and there is, there's a place where the earth is significant, it's not mediocre, it's not just another planet like all the other planets that are going through the, the universe that there could possibly be life on and we're sort of like a mediocre person, mediocre planet, there's nothing special about it. If we are special, if God has caused us to be special, and there is a purpose for my life and for your life, then I want that life to be lived out. I want that purpose to be bought out in my life. I want to go through my life and live that purpose out so that at the end of my life, the purpose of my life is not dismissed. And it may be just for one person. It may be for my family. It may not be for... I'm not looking for fame. I'm just looking to have meaning in my life and to make my life mean something for God. You might have a, want to have a legacy of love, be known as a lover, someone who loved people, loved and cared for people, unconditionally held people up and sought after them. If I, if I mention something like Mother Teresa, there's a legacy there. You get a, a, a frail little woman who's hugging poor people. And you've got that image in your mind. Why? Because there's a legacy there of love. There's a leg legacy of compassion there. But, you know, you have to determine to have a legacy. Those things just don't happen. They start very young in the piece. Let's have a look at the things that cause us problem. I put association, violation, betrayal, and defeat. That's essentially what happened with the children of Israel. It was their associations, and it's always going to be your associations. So just don't think that our oh, friends are friends and that's neutral. No, God actually told the children of Israel in Deuteronomy, you would have known this. He says, when you get into the promised land, he says, have nothing to do with these people. He says, don't, you know, start hanging around with the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites. Don't hang around with them. And especially don't sort of get your kids hooked up with their kids and get them married together. He says, if you do that, if there's this unequally yoked stuff happening, you're going to serve their gods. You're going to be taken away. He says, now just keep that in your mind. So Moses makes it very clear. You know, Joshua makes it very clear. Don't do it. And what, what do we have? Judges 3, 5, 6 says, and thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and they served their gods. The very thing they told not to do. So association put violation of the law of God, put betrayal of God and eventually brought them defeat. Now friends, I want, to, I want to just talk to you about this idea of neutrality, a place of neutrality. And you think that you can have neutral friends over this period of Christmas. Friends that won't persuade you to go the other way. There are no such friends. There are only friends who are turned on to God and friends who are turning God off. And if your association, and I'm not saying you don't mix with them because if you don't mix with them, they can never be saved. But you don't join with them. There's a difference between mixing with them and ministering to them and shining before them and mixing with them and becoming like them and somehow joining with them. It's the association of joining with somebody who's not neutral, who's on the other side, who doesn't love God, 
in the joining, you will violate your love with, for God, you will betray your love with God, and you will be defeated by that whole process. That's what Judges tells us all about. It says, this is a pattern that goes on, he says. It's something that happens all the time. So Judges chapter 3, we read these words. So the, king, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Cushan Reshatharim. You want to try that one day? King of Mesopotamia and the children of Israel served Cushan Reshatharim eight years. So what we have is this guy. His name means doubly evil. That's what his name means. So if you look at the name Cushereshatham and you say, what does it mean? And you go to the, and it says double evil. That's what his name means. And God stirred him up and said, you know what? My people have forgotten me. I'm going to give them some hardship now. And he strengthened their enemy against them. Now, let me talk about this whole idea of the associations. We think that the associations is somehow sort of neutral and so we allow those associations in our lives and we get ourselves sort of unequally yoked in some sense with somebody who is not God-loving and God-fearing like we are. And in that process, two evils happen. We exchange our love for God for our love for that person and then we create in this relationship something that is not justifiable, something that we think we can draw from, a well of water that is not the well of God. There's double evil there because you're meant to go to God to get it all from and you're meant to love him above everything else. So you've committed two great sins by putting another person in God's face. You draw from that person and you love that person more than you love God. So you've broken love the Lord your God with all your heart and you've, you've violated his love for your fellow man the way that God wants. You wanted to be a light there, you've become dark with the darkness. Double evil. Don't ever think that you can do that and get away unburned. God loves you so much, he's going to get hot and angry at you. And I know he loves you, but every attachment that you get caught into like that, he will provide extra steam for it, and that attachment will burn you badly, and you will find great pain from it. It will hurt you. And why is God allowing it to you broke my heart? You betrayed me. Hey, listen, why did God let that happen to you? Because he wants to get you back. He wants to shake you and turn you around and come back to him now. He wants to turn your head from what you're doing into what you should be doing. And so he will, he will turn your enemy up and your enemy will enslave you. And you'll be enslaved by that. And when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. There's some legacy there. Caleb, younger brother. Oh, you know, Caleb, he's the one who was mighty in valor. At 84 years old, I'm, I've still got the strength of a young man. I'm going to take that mountain. Uh, can you help me, please? Othnel, I'll, I'll do it for you. And he runs up and he takes the mountain for his older brother, Caleb. There's some legacy right there. 
Caleb's legacy is there in his brother. And his brother is raised up. Okay, everything's bad in Israel. Everything looks bad in Israel. And this, this bad man, doubly bad man, has risen up. Kashen Rishen Theorem has risen up. And, he's, he's, and this guy says, you know what? I've had enough now. He's raised up inside and God has, spirit has come upon this young man and he, and he, he judged Israel and he went out to war and the Lord delivered Kashish Rishon Therim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and his hand prevailed over Kashin Rishon Therim so that the land had rest for 40 years. This man's love for God, this man's diligence in God caused the rest to come on the whole nation for a lifetime. I like that. When no one else is raising a finger, when everybody else is swayed by the world, when their worldliness is crowding everybody, God looks down and he finds one man, he finds one woman, and he says, stir him up by the Holy Spirit, and he gets them to stand up and says, now you turn it on, turn the heat on, and kill that monkey out there. One person can make a huge difference for a whole nation. One man, one person who decides, I'm not going to play the game of mediocrity. I'm not going to be compromised. I'm not going to be a wandering generality. I'm going to stand up for God. I'm going to believe God. God is going to find faith in me when he comes back. And I'm going to be the one he wants me to be. And peace can be brought through your life as you lay that legacy down for a whole nation. That's amazing. But you know what we read? And the children of Israel did the evil again in the sight of the Lord after he died. There's just a bent. There's just a lock in there to evil. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek. And they went and they smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. He was a big fat man, Eglon. And then the Lord moved upon a man called Ehud. And Ehud was a left-handed man. In fact, every time this pattern happened, God would stir up somebody who was listening. So the children of evil, the children of God did evil. Then God, the Lord, strengthened the enemies to cause them pain. So they started to cry out towards God, and God heard them. He says, well, that's what I want to hear. You're calling out to me again. Then the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, and his spirit came upon the one he raised up. And then while they, the deliverer was there, and while he delivered them, peace ruled over the land. That was like a pattern. That was set up through the book of Judges. You can go through and you can look at the life of Othniel. He came from a godly heritage, Ehud. He was inventive. This man was inventive. He, he was a left-handed man and he made a dagger to go on the right leg. He walked up to the king Eglon after he's paying the tribute and he says, he must have been a personable guy. That he must have been likable. Because he got in there and they said, oh, guys, go away now. So he's, he's, he's just by himself now with all the Eglon's men. He says, I've got a secret for you, king. He must have been a nice guy. They said, okay. And he's, 
they all left and they left the king and uh, King Englong there with Ehud. I've got a secret from God for you. And as he got him close, he pulled from his right thigh the dagger and shoved it right through him until the hilt disappeared into the fat of this man. And the Bible says that the dirt spilled out. Then he locked the door, climbed out the window, and went away. And they came to the king's quarters and said, The king, king! He's in his private chambers. He must be looking after himself. So they waited and they waited and they waited and they couldn't get him to rise. And they were embarrassed now because they're going to have to open the door. So they unlocked the door and opened up and there he is lying dead. Just plenty of time for Ehud to get away and to blow the trumpet and to rally Israel and to fight against them. This man, this man, who was he? What was he? He's just a normal bloke. He's just an ordinary bloke with some little, he was left-handed. Just ordinary, but he had some strategies up his sleeve. He, he was open to God and God moved him by the Holy Spirit. And he was available. Do something. I don't want to sit here and let this roll over us. I want to do something about this. Shamgar, we only got a little verse about Shamgar. He just picks up a, an ox's go, which is a strong pointy stick that you, that you, you poke an ox with when you're plowing. And he slew 600 Philistines. Just imagine that. You're sitting there in this bloke. 600 men around this bloke. You can, who's going to win? Who's going to win? 600 men or this bloke with a stick? God can do amazing things with individuals who decide that they're going to make a difference and lay a legacy down. We don't get any more about Shamgar except for that. We know he judged Israel. We know he delivered Israel, but we only have one little picture. I think that would have been an awesome awesome thing to see. 600 men around one bloke and he's just going mad. And then 600 men dead and him standing there with his spear. What will God do with your life if you decide to make the difference? You think it's too big for you? There's too many people around you crowding you. You can't be different. Think of Shamgar. What have you got in your hand? Is it just a stick to poke an ox with? It's enough. Use what you've got. It must have been like a martial arts display. But think about it. How would it have worked? It would have been astounding. This guy would have been fluid movement. Every time he moved, somebody would have been taken out. Every move, there would have been three people falling before somebody behind him got it. And he would have been just like a windmill. You can imagine. You could write a movie on that. That would be the central scene. You're just shame guy doing this stuff. Such a legacy. A legacy. I'll die, but I won't quit. 600 men in front of me, I'm not quitting. I've got a stick. I'm going to go there and make a difference. That's it. Walk straight in there and make a difference. God help us to be like Shamgar. Deborah was a woman. Well, let's stop there. But she was ruling and she was a prophetess and she was, she was doing the stuff and, you know, They'd come to Deborah and ask for, and Deborah was a prophetess and she would hear from God. And then she tells the guys, hey, buddy, it's time to go and have a victory because God's with you. He's got to give you some victory. And the guy says, I'm not going to go unless you come with me. 
says, well, that's all right, because a girl called Gail is going to make the final death blow to the king and you're going to lose the glory because you couldn't do it yourself. And you read the story. A woman who had a legacy in God, who left a legacy, and now inspires every woman in this place to stand up and hear from God, and to be what God wants you to be and stand up and do what God wants you to do. Deborah, amazing woman. Gideon, complicated life, not real com- comfortable in life. But you read the story. She's a humble, humble person, but passionate, just wants to know God, has to test to find out if it's right. And she's listening, and then, then God just tests this and tests and tests him until he's, he just does an amazing thing just by smashing a clay pot and holding up a torch. Some amazing things. And Dimelech, he's a really bad boy. This is the, the contrast. You either let good men rise up, or bad men will rise up in their place. Tola and Jar and Jephthah, who had a very rash vow, we could discuss. It's Zan and Elon and Abdon and Samson. You know about Samson. None of these guys were perfect, you know. When you look at their life, don't think that you can do You have to be perfect before you can achieve it. Samson was far from perfect. These men were far from... Jephthah was... They said he must have been a godly man who made a vow. No, he wasn't a godly man. If you think about... He, he, he did some really stupid things. You're hanging out with some bad people before they actually call them. You know, he was a half-caste. You know, like he was an illegitimate child. You know, what... Dad was dad, but his mum was someone who was a prostitute, you know, and they didn't want him around. And so he had an attitude as big as large as life, you know. But still, God even uses people who've got attitudes as large as life. Because they want to make a difference. You want to make a difference? Do you want your life to count for something? Or are you going to be forgotten? Is your name going to be written in water? I can't make people remember me in the end. I can only live like I'm with God and God's working with me. The end of the book of Judges, we read this verse. In those days, there, and it occurs a couple of other places as well in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That sounds so familiar. Does that sound familiar to you? That's postmodernism right there back then. So there's nothing new under the sun. You don't think that postmodernism is a new phase that we've just entered into, which like, you know, everybody has their own relative ideas of right and wrong here. No, no, no. This is, this, there is nothing new under the sun. That sort of mentality was back then at the book of Judges. It was always so right throughout. Everybody who decided to, to determine their own rights and wrongs and do what they think is right and wrong rather than listen to God is this one. They did what was right in their own mind. I think that I should listen. What is right in God's mind is the question you should be asking. What does God want me to be doing? What does God want me to be saying? How does God want me to be living? How can I live for God? How can I have a God-centered life? How can I have a Holy Spirit-empowered life to make a difference? How can I make that my legacy so that the purpose of God is seen out of my life, so that at the end of my life, when they put me in a box and they throw dirt on my face, I won't be there, but they'll be thinking about the mark that he made for God. So decide to leave a God-centered, Holy Spirit-empowered legacy.
Timothy helps us with this. And this is a book written by Paul to Timothy. And I like this passage of Scripture because it kind of sums up some of the ideas that you have to keep in your mind if you're going to do this. Paul is about to leave. Who's Timothy? My son in the faith. It's his legacy. Timothy is the legacy of Paul. Paul taught Timothy. Timothy taught others. So Paul is saying, I'm going to actually breathe into you, young man, like I'm breathing into Titus, like I breathed into the Corinthians' lives, like I breathed into the other Ephesians' lives and the Philippians' lives. I'm going to breathe into you, Timothy. You're a pastor, and I'm going to breathe into you, and I'm going to tell you, this is how you leave a legacy. He doesn't use those words, but you can hear what he says. You there, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ. So he starts off very, very carefully and says, there's somewhere you have to be strong, and that's in the grace of Christ Jesus. I like that, because you're going to fail a lot in the attempt to try and be remembered. You're going to fail more times than you succeed. But the righteous man falls seven times and rises again. And in the attempt to be making a difference, you're going to run into it a lot and it is the grace of God that will keep you going. So be strong in the grace of God because you need His grace. You can't do it by yourself. You will stumble and you will fall. You will fail. You will not be able to achieve it. But God's grace can make it because His grace will equip you to do it. The grace of God teaches you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright lives. That's the grace of God. So be strong in the grace of God. If you fail, come back to God and say, God, your grace is strong. I failed. Forgive me. Help me to get going again. You get cool at all the fire. It goes down and you can't feel the heat of the Holy Spirit's presence on your life anymore. And you feel, oh, you're watching too much TV. You're watching too many movies. You're talking to too many friends who, are, who you think are neutral but are not neutral. And all of a sudden, you've got this cold, cold, steely death over your life. Get back to God and ask the fire of God's Holy Spirit to burn you again. Get back to the grace of God and say, God, will you have me? I'm not finished yet. You're not finished with me. I'm still breathing. I'm not dead yet. God, can you use me now? Can you use me now? I failed, but can you use me again? And stand up in the grace of God. Let God's spirit come upon your life again and empower you from within and strengthen you to do the work of God again. Don't quit. Be strong in the grace of God. Timothy was a timid man. He was timid. And he was told to stir up the gift that's in you with the laying on of my hands. Stir it up, Timothy. Don't sit there and let it get down. Stir it up. Stir it up. Some of us need to stir it up. The cool breath of Satan blows on us, cooling us down every day. Every media outlet, every piece of music that you listen to tries to cool you because none of it's neutral. Tries to cool your flame for God down. So much so that the increase of wickedness and the love of most has grown cold. Stir it up. Stir it up. Stir it up. Get that fear inside of you. God, if I, if I stay here, if I stay here, I'll be dead like the rest. 
Stir me up, Jesus. Stir me up. Stir me up. And then he says to me, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men, and, and I'll put women in there too, who are able to teach others also. That's legacy, right there. He's saying, you've been listening to me for some time, Timothy. I've been laying down some foundations of truth and doctrine in your life. And I've told you publicly amongst many people, and you've been taking notes and you've been listening to those things. He says, don't just learn them now. Don't just be teachable. Now start recognizing you've got to teach that to other people. You start mentoring somebody else to be mentoring somebody else. If you want a legacy, you've got to lay it down in somebody else's life because they'll outlive you. And the things that you lay down in somebody else's life will be there as a deposit. If you die, somebody else... I've got lots of little pools of deposit around the place in people's lives that I've laid down over the years. I'm just believing that when I die, they're still going to be alive and God can fan that into a flame in somebody else's life. You might not remember me, but those people will. And they'll be stirred with it. Because they love me. And they love the Word. You see, you've got to do that, and that's purposeful. Now, there's a couple of things you've got to get here. The first one is you've got to be teachable. I mean, if you're sitting there, I'm, I talk to the hand, Mark, I'm listening to you, but I'm not really listening to you. And, and, and you're bored by what I'm saying. So you're not even teachable. You're not even hearing what I'm saying. So you can't even start laying down a legacy because your attention is on something else. You're learning from somewhere else. You're eating out of someone else's bowl. You're not even eating out of the bowl that Jesus has put in front of you. You've got to be teachable. So the mentoring thing, the legacy thing, is you've got to start. You've got to be teachable. You've got to be here. We, we, we stood in the study on Tuesday night about Proverbs, and it says, my son hearkened to the voice of my mouth. It's like, you know, you've got to open your ears and shut your mouth and be learning something. Some of you in your teenage years, you, you think you know it all, and you think you know it all so much so that you will speak at people who are speaking to you who know better. And you don't want to hear it. Shut the ears to it, and you open your mouth to have a word back. You know, you ought to shut the... They the whip them out and open your ears because maybe you'll learn something. Being teachable. We older people are not telling you the things that we're telling you because we hate you. We're telling you the things we're telling you because we love and care about you. And even though in your mind you think you know more, just take it that God has placed us there to tell you something that will embed in your life to make you better. And be teachable. Then the things that you will learn because you are teachable, then you can impart to others. But if you're not listening, you've got nothing to give to anybody else. Your peer group will speak to you and you will obey your peer group. Your parents will speak to you and you'll say, talk to the hand. Friends, you've got to make a decision today where your legacy is going to be. Some of you will be a shipwreck on the side of the ocean, run aground on some rocks, nothing but rusted metal, warning people, do not come this way. And others of you will be a lighthouse in the drink, shining a light, warning people to get away from the rocks. You choose your legacy. You want to be a shipwreck? Or a lighthouse. That's your choice. You choose that. 
says, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, he says to Timothy. Well, that was because Timothy's probably getting the church and he's starting to get it. It's cozy for him now. You know, he's starting to pay his money. You know, he says, I don't have to worry about Centrelink anymore. The church pays me. Woohoo! It's getting easy now because I'm, I'm the minister now in the center and everybody's looking after me, Paul. You know, this is what, this is what you're talking about. He said, no, no, no. He says, endure hardship, Timothy. Don't get comfortable. Don't think that just because you're a minister of a church now and things are going well and people are coming to listen to you that it's all okay, Timothy. Don't get comfortable. He says, endure hardship like a good soldier. He says, you are a soldier. You've been enlisted. Now, that's the thing that we forget. We forget that there's this raging army around us that's wanting to destroy us, that there is no neutral place, there's no place for safe place, there's no Switzerland here for us where we can go and hide and keep away from all the bad people. This is a war-torn place and you either are switched on and you're a soldier or you're switched off and you are cannon fodder. You either remember that you're in the battle and you are equipping yourself to fight the good fight of faith or you are going to get shot through. That's the end of it. And he says, Endure hardship is good. That sounds better, doesn't it? Enlisted in battle. Expect and embrace difficulty factor. You know, this whole paradigm of our society, and especially in Australia, is is the wonderful long weekend, the incredible time that we can have to relax and have pleasure. In fact, all of us of Australia is built on this hedonistic idea of pleasure is the greatest good. So this is contrary to that whole idea because it says you're not in this for pleasure. This is this, embrace the discomfort. Embrace the discipline. Embrace the battle. This is not about pleasure and relaxation. Do not let your guard down because if you do, you'll get a bullet in the head. In the um, in the Anzacs, when the Anzacs were digging in against the Turks, all the tall boys were dead before everybody else. Well, why were they dead? Their head was always above the uh, above the trench. The tall boy was sitting there, and he'd stick his head up. Bang! He got a bullet in the brain. All the short guys survived. All the tall boys, all the tall boys like me, they got killed straight away. Why? Because they kept on sticking their head up where the fire was there. Listen, you cannot stick your head up when the devil is around because he put a bullet in your brain. You only have to open that gate one little bit and he's putting something in your head to go round and round and round and round. I could start singing the song for you now that it's a worldly song that you'll never get out of your head. It will go round and round in your head because it's designed to go round in your head. Like the Leyland brothers traveling all over the countryside, like the Leyland, like the Leyland, da, 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 da. Oh, I have Now you just go round and round and round in your head, like the Leyland brothers. You can't, some of you are young enough not to know that. But all of those who are my age will remember that and we were glad that we forgot it. And now you're there. Oh, dear. You stick your head up in a battle and you'll get a bullet in your brain. You've got to keep your helmet on the whole time. You cannot keep on doing this thing. Where you see, I relax, it's a neutral place. Bang, you got one. And you have to deal with it then. Be a soldier. Have that. No one engaged in in a warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. That's the focus factor. 
let's recognize that this is not a playtime. You know, you can enjoy your fellowship with your friends and you're going to probably find somebody who you're going to love and you're going to get married and you're going to have kids and you're going to get a nice job and you're going to get into a nice career and everything's going to be rosy and you're going to have enough money and some of you will have enough money to buy a house and some of you won't. And But, you know, you'll all be happy because happiness is what it's all about. Happiness is what? A truth. Isn't that the way the song goes? Happiness is a truth. That's what it was, something like that. One of the, who knows that one? Some of you do that. Yes, I know you do. Boy, it gets in your head, that one. I press weights and happiness is the truth. No, it's not. It's a happening. It's not a truth. It's crazy. It just gets in your head. You're in a war. You're in a war zone the whole time. You've got to focus. You've got to recognize. There's no time to play games. There's no time to fool around. There's no time to, to, to put your focus out. As soon as you're focused down, you'll be portrayed. You'll be sold over. You'll be in the enemy's territory and the enemy will be exercising himself over you. Now remember, if you love Jesus with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, it is to him that you are accountable for every second that you breathe. You should say, oh, Jesus, is, do you want me to watch this movie tonight or not? Oh, Mark, that's a bit, oh, you're getting really, really nitty-gut. You know, you, what is life if you can't have a movie on a Friday night or two? Let me say something to you. If you want to have, you know, that sort of interrelationship with the world, don't be surprised if when you're doing that, then somehow God gets angry at that and he excites within you something that is going to try and enslave you and that you have to deliver later on. Because that was the pattern. It would be much better if you went to a lonely place and sought his face. And I know you've got to do some things and sit down and watch movies sometimes and you just get caught there, you know. But when you're doing that, just make sure your shield's up and be dissecting that movie with every spiritual scripture you've got. Now, that's an act of immorality. I, I, they don't, people don't like watching movies with me because as soon as two couples get together and it's outside of marriage, I said, it's immorality right there. It's adult, that's called fornication. That's one of the commandments. It's number seven of the Ten Commandments. Well, shut up and let's just watch the movie. I can't, that's a person just told a lie. That's breaking the ninth commandment right there. Right there. This is not a, this is, well, I don't want you to watch a movie with it. That's good. That's what I want to hear. Don't watch a movie with me because you can't enjoy the movie. No, I can't enjoy the movie. When there's no, there is no neutral place here. Something's going down every time. And also, if you competes in the, as, and also, if anyone competes in athletics, athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules, Paul says to Timothy. He's, he's giving these ideas to Timothy so that he can recognize how he should do his life. There are no shortcuts to this. Don't think that you can do that, you know, cross-country run and cut across the paddock halfway through and get out in front of the others because you've got a shortcut. There are no shortcuts to this. This is long-distance endurance running, and you have to run the distance, and you have to run according to the rules. You have to do what God wants you to do. You can't play with sin and not be burned. If you play with sin, you're going to be burned. So you have to put sin away. You can't justify it and say, well, that's my way of, you know, ministering to people, you know. No, 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 no. This is not going to work. You won't get the prize unless you compete according to the rules. There are some things that you will do that will disqualify you. 
You will not make it through. You have to do what God tells you to do. You have to keep to the rules. And the rules, as far as I can see, is faith and a good conscience. That which is of faith, if you at at any point of time feel uncomfortable about a situation you are moving into, don't move into it because that which is not of faith is sin. And then if at any point of time you've got a bad conscience because you did something, get it right. Cleanse my conscience from dead works to serve a living God. Cleanse me, Jesus. I did something wrong. My conscience bears witness that I did something wrong. Make it right. That's the rules for engagement. Keep it clean. Keep it right. Develop the art of being right. Living right. Not attempting to be right. Being right. Turn to your neighbor and say, develop the art. Develop the art of being right. Some of you don't get that, do you? Finally, the hardworking farmer must be first to take of all the crops. I used to sit and think about this and think, oh, this is justifiable. I can get a wage from the church. (laughs) I'm the farmer. I can get a wage. You know, the... Hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Now, he may well have meant that for Timothy, but when I'm reading it, I don't get that. I get it this way. Don't try and feed to somebody else the very thing that you won't eat yourself. If you're producing something for others, be sure you are living it yourself. That's what I think it says. Because I can stand up here in my righteousness and tell you to do all these horrible things, not watch TV, and then I can go away and watch TV because I'm not willing to do it myself. He says, the hard-working farmer must be the first partaker. I should do it first. This is, this is this pragmatism about life, you know, righteous living. If it doesn't work for you, don't try and get other people to do it. You know, you ought to give X number of dollars to the church you know, and put that pressure on everybody to give to the church. Why are you doing that? Well, do you do that? No, I don't do that. But again, I'd like them to do it. Why? Does it work for you? No, it didn't work for me. Why, why, why should it work for them? Why, why are you being a Pharisee and loading upon others the very thing that you're not willing to do yourself? However, if you've learned to give and you can't outgive God and, the, and, and then you say, you should learn to give to God and praise Him with you. you know, and, you, and that's something... You, well, then why not say it? Because you've learned it's good. You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He is faithful in all those things. And you've eaten of that fruit. And you know that it's trustworthy. And, and, and David says, I've been, I'm an old man. I was a young man once. And now I'm an old man. I have never seen the righteous go begging for food, he says. What's he saying to you? You can't outgive God. What's he, where's he saying that from? He's saying it from a man who has tried and proven that God will always supply for him. It's like he's eaten of the farm. He knows this is what I've produced. I eat it. It's good. You should try some. Francis Assisi says, and you can't read it there because it's so fine. He says, I... well, that's very good. You've got good eyes. You got that? There's no use walking anywhere to preach unless your preaching is your walking. I like that. Practice what you preach. Don't walk anywhere to preach the word if you're not walking the preaching. 
if we were more honest with people and say, well, I haven't really got it all together, but there's one thing I do know, Jesus is good and he's good in these areas, then you're giving them fruit that you've already tried and proven. And then if you think you need to develop your appetite, ask Jesus to grow some more crops in your backyard for you to uh, try. You haven't tried broccoli yet? Try it, you know? Let Jesus grow a crop of broccoli. And before you sell it to anybody else, you eat a big load yourself. Slimy beans? No, we won't go that far. Okra. Who likes eating okra? Deborah does. So there it is there. Then he says, consider what I say and may the Lord give you understanding. So this is the final verse. Consider what I say, may the Lord give you understanding. I like when I see the word consider because it says something to me. It says, think. Think. Engage your mind. Our our society is very sensual. It actually persuades you to disengage your mind and to engage your emotions. Essentially, that's what it does. Last night we had a party down the road from me. Did you hear that? It was great, wasn't it? I rang the police. Yes, I did. Did they come and knock on your door? No, no, they said they were going to knock on mine, but they didn't. I went to sleep. I shut the windows. But the party was amazing. I mean, it must have been a kilometre away, but it was so loud that it was like they were in the back door. And it was like wild, like it was really wild. Highway to hell, ha, 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 you know, headbutt, you know. You got no idea. And then it was high tech, you know, (laughs) all that sort of stuff, you know, really weird stuff, you know. Yeah, and then it was all the expletives that come along with it. <laughs> and they swear, you know, and everyone goes, ah, yeah. Oh, what's it? This one, isn't it? What's it? That one, that one, the devil's horn. <laughs> and it's all that emotion. Everyone goes, yeah. And then they go, oh, it's a wild, wicked party, wasn't it? And what are they saying? They're saying all about the way they felt when they got all hyped up and all drummed up and all drunk and crazy. And it went to 12 o'clock. Yeah, he said it went to 12. Of snoring. When I snore, nothing else comes past me. Consider is thinking critically about your life. Develop that art of thinking. So if I ask you the question, let me pick somebody. William, think about your life. Think about the things that come to you. The things that try and persuade you in one way or the other. That there is no neutral ground. Think that one through. That either one person is going to lead you away or a person is going to lead you towards. I want you to think about your life and the legacy you want to leave. And I want to think about your engagement with the people around you and your engagement with the Word of God and your engagement with God and with people. I want you to think about that very carefully so that you don't walk into the future without thinking about it. You need to stop and think about your life. You can be one of the Israelites who when they got to the promised land just decided it was going to be milk and honey and it was going to be easy, that it was going to be easy from there on. 
and you can forget the fact that he's actually telling you it's hard work. That you have to think this one through. You can't be where you are now and not think about what you're losing when you forget God. You are losing your future. You are losing your legacy. You are losing your life. You are losing the meaning of your life. Think about that. And then when you thought about that, have a talk to Jesus about that and ask him, make my life count for something. Doesn't matter what I've been through, doesn't matter what's happened, make my life count for something. This is the end of a year. Next year, next week, we have another little sermonette and a Christmas party and then the following week, Probably it's a new year, is it? It's another year. Do they flick by, don't they? I've had 58 of them. Hmm. Where did they all go? Where are we today? My friends, this church is facing situations now where members in this congregation are just about to move on to be with Jesus. Not very long from now. Make your life Count for God. Seriously, think about it. Let's stand, shall we? Bow your heads. <clears throat> I hope this word has challenged your heart. I hope God has spoken into your spirit. But I can't do the hard work that you need to do. I can't challenge you enough to make the hard choices when it comes to Monday and the things that are happening around you and the choices that you make on Monday. Only an encounter with Jesus today is able to do that to you. If you're ignoring me today, you will ignore me tomorrow and you'll ignore, ignore Jesus tomorrow and you will do what you want to do and it will be like the Israelites. God will stir up something and you will suffer pain because you won't, God won't be mocked. Whatever you sow, that's what you'll reap. And the pain is meant to bring you back to God. But you can make a choice before the pain comes. You can make a choice to in, enter into the pain and do the right thing and suffer because of the right thing, not because of the wrong thing. You can make that choice. So ask yourself the question, what do you want to do? You're finishing off a year, how do you want to start the new one? You want to start it with Jesus in the center, empowered by the Holy Spirit? If you do, I want you to raise your hand. So that's me. I want to, I want to just go for God. Now, I can't... You, this is hard work for you. I can't be there. You're going to have to... This is going to, this is going to be something that God is going to say to you tomorrow when you wake up. He's going to say to you, okay, it's time now. You are enlisted. You're enlisted. God has got a job for you to do. There's a purpose for your life. It's time to move in Him. So let's pray. Father, you see the hands that are raised at the end of this year. We're saying to you, Lord Jesus, we don't want to be dropped into a place of mediocrity. We want to be enlivened into a place of activity, Lord Jesus. Lord, we give ourselves to you again, Father, and we ask you to forgive us for our 
complacency, Father, and ask you to charge us again with your Holy Spirit, Father, and to move us forward and fill us to overflowing so that we can embrace, Father, the difficulty of following you, Father, in the promised land. We know there's hard work to be achieved, Father, but there are souls to be saved, Father. There's victories to be won, Father. There's things to be done, Father. There's a legacy to be laid down, Father. We want you to breathe through our lives so that at the end, Father, the next generation will hear your voice, Father. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.